Welcome to Global Perspectives, the International Insolvency Institute's podcast. Welcome back to the International Insolvency Institute's Global Perspectives podcast. My name is Adam Crane, and I am chair of the IIIe's NextGen program and co-chair of the IIIe's Regional Committee for the United States, Canada, and the Caribbean. On today's episode, we are joined by Professor Lynn Taylor, Dr. Elizabeth Stretton, and Dr. Lazelle Jacobs, who will be speaking about recent developments to bankruptcy and restructuring procedures in Australia and New Zealand. This episode will be moderated by Dr. Eugenio Vaccari, who is a senior lecturer with the Royal Holloway University of London. Welcome back to another post podcast organized by the IIIe NextGen program. My name is Eugenio Vaccari, and I'm a senior lecturer at Royal Holloway University of London, as well as a member of the IIIe NextGen Executive Committee. Today, we will speak of recent developments under Australian and New Zealand statutes and cases. I'm very grateful to be joined by Professor Lynn Taylor, Dr. Elizabeth Stratton, and Dr. Lizelle Jacobs. Lynn is Professor of Law at the University of Canterbury in New Zealand. She researches and teaches in the areas of corporate, commercial, and insolvency law, and has published extensively in these areas in New Zealand and overseas. She is the principal author of The Law of, New of Insolvency in New Zealand and the co-editor of Corporate Law in New Zealand. Beth teaches across a variety of corporate subjects at Queensland University of Technology. Beth has a background as a practicing litigator, and she's heavily involved in a series of initiatives and projects within Enzo International. Lizelle is Associate Professor in Law at University Technology Sydney. She has advanced knowledge and expertise on several insolvency laws, including South African law, English law, and Australian law. Lizelle has been recently appointed as Legal Director of ARITA, the Principal Association of Insolvency Practitioners in Australia. Welcome everyone, we are very pleased of having you here. I would like to start with a question on Australia. In 2022, the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Corporations and Financial Services launched an inquiry on the effectiveness of Australian insolvency law. Its report, published in July 2023, concluded that the system is in need for comprehensive reform because the piecemeal changes carried out in the past few years have resulted in a system that is difficult to navigate and operate. Could you tell our audience what the main findings of this report are? Uh, thank you, Eugenio. Um, yes, I'll have a go. So the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Corporations and Financial Services, led by Senator Deborah O'Neill, as you said, launched an inquiry, and it was actually specifically in relation to corporate insolvency law in Australia initially. And the report, which then followed after consultation, made 28 recommendations in relation to corporate insolvency law and insolvency law in general. The gist of it, of the report, can be summarised as a call to an independent review of Australia's entire insolvency framework, both corporate and personal. And it is due to exactly the reason that you so aptly stated in your question. The legislative framework governing insolvencies in Australia has become increasingly difficult to navigate and follow. 
This is in part due to the commendable efforts to tackle law reform as and when it was needed. However, this has resulted in a framework that is quite pancaked, um, for lack of a better word, um, and has several structural issues as well. And so many practitioners, lawyers and scholars have called for what they have termed a root and branch review. This review would entail looking at the system afresh and holistically with a view to overhaul it completely. So the PJC report confirmed its intention to follow this advice from industry. As you noted, Australia's um, Restructuring Insolvency and Turnaround Association, ARETA, uh, commented in their submission that Australia's legislative framework has become quite legally complex, with provi uh, provisions pertaining to insolvency law spread across several pieces of legislation. And this is exacerbated by the fact that in Australia, uh, there is a bifurcated system corporate and personal insolvency are dealt with by separate pieces of legislation. And Arita submitted that in their opinion, insolvency laws um, should be combined in one single piece of legislation, um, which in my opinion is a sensible suggestion, given that many other jurisdictions around the world also follows this approach. Um, interestingly, this was also considered by the Harmer Review in 1988 already. The other important thing to highlight from the report is the direction that certain aspects of the law need to be considered for amendment with immediate effect, uh, like the small business restructuring and simplified liquidation proceedings, as both of these have failed to deliver on the policy objectives set out to be achieved. Now, I have only really had to live with the law in its current form for a very short period of time, but Beth has had to live with it for far longer, and she might have other insights to share on this. Thank you, Lizelle. Uh, as you've aptly summarised, the report is quite considerable. It's 358 pages, and it really looks to recommending a simplification and a harmonisation uh, of our corporate and personal insolvency law. Now, the Harmer Report, as you mentioned, was in 1988, and that's really been the last holistic review of Australian insolvency law. Since then, there has been considerable reforms uh, through an enormous number of uh, statutes, but they've been very hodgepodge, very piecemeal in nature, and they've overcomplicated uh, and really made the corporate and to some extent personal insolvency uh, very complex when it doesn't need to be. So it's been a very, very difficult area for some time, especially for people who uh, uh, might be stakeholders in insolvency, uh, but for the first time, and it's very difficult for them to get across procedures themselves. So the idea is now to have a new holistic review, a root and branch is the popular phrase, as you mentioned, and to really review the entirety of corporate and personal insolvency to look towards some harmonisation of the two very separate frameworks. 
they've recommended that there be a clear time frame for this comprehensive review uh, and that a final report be delivered within three years of its commencement. And as you mentioned, Lizelle, they've also recommended that there be some sooner uh, reviews of matters that need redress in a faster time frame. But just to give you an idea of some of the topics, uh, we're talking about going back to even theoretical principles of the objectives of insolvency law. And that's an area that's actually been heavily neglected in Australia because we don't have a lot of discussion about what the objectives are that they're actually trying to achieve. And it makes it very, very difficult to have effective regulation where there isn't any clear statement about what the objectives of that legislation is. So uh, I'm really looking forward to having this holistic review, a consideration of objectives and a consideration of all the various frameworks that currently exist. And part of that is going to also be a review of uh, practitioner regulation uh, and of unfair preferences, voidable transactions, the operation of a voluntary administration uh, and various other things as well. So uh, the 358 page report is uh, a very interesting read, uh, but essentially, as Lizelle said, it comes to the conclusion that what we need is another review and another significant report and to move from there. Thank you very much. Thanks, Lizelle. Thanks, uh, uh, Beth. Yes, these seem to be very exciting times, at least in Australia. Um, Lean, you recently published an article on the International Insolvency Review. In that article, you compared the Australian and New Zealand liquidation schemes with the purpose of determining what, if anything, the New Zealand scheme might contribute to the reform of Australian corporate insolvency law. Could you summarize the main findings of your paper for our audience? I'm, in, I'm particularly interested in your views on small business insolvency and restructuring, as this is a hot topic in several jurisdictions across the world at the moment. Thank you, Eugenia, and thank you for the invitation to participate today. In answer to your question as to what the New Zealand insolvency scheme might contribute to the reform of Australian corporate insolvency law, I think the answer to that question is quite a bit, particularly in respect of the New Zealand's liquidation scheme, because there are more differences than you might anticipate in the detail of the Australian and New Zealand schemes, given the similarities between the two countries. They have quite close cultural ties, they have a shared English legal heritage, and they both have very high company per capita rates. There's one company for every seven New Zealanders and one for every eight Australians. And most of those companies, like the world over, are small enterprises. Now, New Zealand has yet to introduce insolvency procedures that are targeted at small business insolvencies and restructuring, and there are none on the horizon. Now, that is a gap when it comes to small business restructuring, but it's less of an issue when it comes to small business liquidations, and that's, I think, because of the quite unique structure of the New Zealand liquidation scheme. It's a scheme that's been in operation for nearly 30 years now. And of course, in New Zealand and Australia, liquidations are where it's at. They're the most frequently occurring insolvency procedure by quite a large margin. 
But what really differentiates the New Zealand liquidation scheme from that of Australia and also of the UK is that it prescribes a single process that's applicable to all liquidations, no matter how they start. And it further streamlines that process by removing most requirements for liquidators to go to the court or to creditors for consent to do certain actions. So I'll just speak a little bit about both of those differences, uh, starting with the single liquidation process. We do have rules relating to the commencement of different kinds of liquidations. So there's a whole series of rules looking at when the court can appoint a liquidator, when a company is unable to pay its debts, and there are rules relating to when shareholders may appoint liquidators. But once liquidation starts, and it starts on the date and the time at which a liquidator is appointed in every case, then there's a single process. So there's just one set of rules relating to liquidators' powers and duties and creditors' meetings and creditors' claims claims, avoidable preferences, and distribution of assets. And there are also, in some cases, provisions built in to assist liquidators who are administering low-value or even no-value liquidations, and that's frequently the case in, uh, when there are small business liquidations. So as an example, there's a provision whereby a liquidator can elect not to call a first meeting of creditors, which is otherwise a mandatory requirement having regard to the assets and liabilities in the liquidation and the likely return. So if there's not likely that there will be much return to creditors, then a liquidator doesn't have to go to the time and expense of calling a meeting of creditors. So a practical consequence of that is that there is just less law. There are far fewer um, regulatory and legislative provisions in New Zealand than there are in Australia. And so that, I think, makes the New Zealand liquidation scheme more accessible for those that are its primary users, which are directors and shareholders and creditors in small company liquidations. The simplicity also likely makes the scheme easier for New Zealand insolvency practitioners to access, and if that's the case, then it may well result in a reduction in their workload and their fees. So another key difference is the reduction in the oversight role of creditors and the court. So uh, New Zealand creditors and court have far fewer uh, mandatory supervisory powers than do their Australian counterparts. So New Zealand creditors, for example, don't have a power to approve liquidators' remuneration, and New Zealand liquidators don't have to go to creditors or the court for approval if they want to compromise a debt above a certain value or if they want to enter into a long-lasting agreement like a litigation funding agreement. That's not to say that liquidators are entirely without supervision. The regulator, the registrar of companies and individual creditors can seek to initiate enforcement proceedings, but individual creditors frequently don't do this because it's often not worth their time and effort and the regulator has a fairly light touch as well. Now, um, Australia did introduce the Simplified Liquidation Scheme back in 2021, and, and Lizelle and Beth may speak more to that in a moment, but it only applies to one form of liquidation, so it only applies to creditors' voluntary winding ups, and it's liquidator-initiated. And my sense as an outsider looking at that scheme is that, in many respects, the New Zealand Standard Scheme is more streamlined and simplified than the new Australian procedure. 
So in theory, at least, the New Zealand scheme ought to be more time efficient and cost efficient, and that works well in a small uh, business insolvency context. But unfortunately, it's not possible at the moment to test whether that's really so. There's no official statistics available in New Zealand as to returns to creditors. So we can't really do a comparison between the countries to two countries to see if there's practical evidence suggesting that one is better than the other. But as the Australian PJC report did recommend simplification of insolvency law as a high-level reform objective, then um, certainly the New Zealand liquidation scheme might have some lessons for the Australian law reform bodies. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Lina. And I would like to continue on this topic uh, because the adoption of bespoke restructuring and liquidation frameworks for small businesses uh, is recommended by international bodies such as UNCITRAL, the World Bank, and Insulin International. Um, Australia, as, as Lynn mentioned, but as you also Beth, uh, as I mentioned, introduced such law, such law in uh, 2021. Uh, has it worked as expected, or should the Australian system borrow some of uh, the key features uh, that uh, uh, Lynn just discussed about the New Zealand framework? Thank you, Eugenio. Uh, I'll start first, uh, and then perhaps Lizelle can make some comments. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, it is an area that's been introduced to Australia. However, it is subject to uh, suggested reform and the PJC recent uh, report actually makes a recommendation that we consider uh, reforms to further simplify and improve that um, simplified restructuring and simplified liquidation. There's been a number of issues with it, and it's been suggested that it has quite limited use today. Of course, uh, like New Zealand, we lack a lot of statistics to really assist us, uh, but uh, it certainly indicates that there's been limited use. A number of the issues could relate to the eligibility requirements, which really limit the number of SMEs uh, that are able to um, make use of the um, pathways. There has been suggested that perhaps we need to loosen those with respect to the need for employee entitlements to be up to date, taxation filings to be up to date, and there's even been a suggestion that the cap, um, the debt cap needs to be adjusted in some respects, but that um, is a matter of debate with others suggesting that it's only meant to be available to a limited number of SMEs. So this is certainly an area for um, consideration in the upcoming review. And it has been suggested that perhaps the negative professional um, sentiment towards the pathways has delayed some investment in systems and processes which have impacted upon its uh, initial low uptake. There's an existing recommendation for a comprehensive review of the uh, requirements and for the requirements of registration for small business restructuring practitioners. Certainly, I believe some of the existing statistics suggest that 13 out of 14 companies simply um, pull down the shutters in the language used and uh, go into deregistration. I think that you're right that we need to look to um, alternative examples overseas. Uh, we should have a look perhaps at New Zealand and I know that the um, suggestion has been made, uh, including from the Australian Small Business and Family Enterprise Ombudsman, 
that we might wish to look to perhaps to systems in Canada, possibly the United Kingdom and Singapore, to really delve into how we could perhaps improve these new uh, frameworks for simplified processes for small businesses. Lizelle um, might perhaps like to comment further, but I, I know that the overall parliamentary position has been that Australia's insolvency system is overly complex, it's difficult to access, there's unnecessary costs, there's confusion for debtors and creditors, and there's definitely room for improvement, including in this area of um, small business. Thank you, Beth. I think you've just provided the perfect segue to what I wanted to say um, in relation to the small business restructuring in particular. Uh, apart from the eligibility issues, uh, there is the, the notion that it is actually highly complex. And the in a RITA submission, for example, there was a call to reduce the complexity and the cost to improve um, the outcomes and the uptake for this um, really useful tool. So the highly complex nature of this procedure uh, was in their opinion due to a lack of adequate consultation with the profession during the drafting stage. Um, and regardless of that though, thinking about what the consequences of this complex nature of the, of the procedure is, if you think about who we would like to use this type of procedure, we're talking about small businesses um, and directors who will not even understand the nature of this procedure because they cannot wrap their heads around the legislation. They cannot find the legislation because it's spread across so many different pieces of legislation. So the call, I think, is, as you said, simplify something that is meant to help the smaller businesses to actually use a very useful tool um, in their toolbox. Thank you, Eugenia. Thanks, Beth, and uh, uh, thanks, Lizelle. Uh, moving to the topic of insolvency practitioners, a new regulatory regime was introduced in 2017 under the Insolvency Law Reform Act uh, to harmonize corporate and personal insolvency systems, reduce regulatory compliance costs, and improve powers of the corporate regulators, uh, uh, the, the corporate regulator, the Australian Securities and Investment Commission. Some scholars have recently compared the Australian and English systems to discuss if we should borrow the concept of a single regulator. Uh, what are your views on the topic? And is the situation in New Zealand significantly different from uh, Australia? Eugenia, I will go first. I think in Australia, the problem with having a bifurcated system is that that brings about two separate regulators, one for corporate and one for personal insolvencies. And in your question, you refer to ASIC or the Australian Securities and Investment Commission. Now, this is the regulator for all things related to corporate. And but then there is also the Australian Financial Security Authority or AFSA, and they see to the regulation um, of personal insolvency matters. Now, as I stated, the problem is having two different regulators is that you will have two different approaches in regulation. And this is never a good thing when it comes to IPs, as we want as a, a, a certain and uh, consolidated an approach as possible. So in their submission, a RITA, for example, 
um, laments the fact that there are two and that the engagement of one of these are actually subpar with industry. So I think the idea of a single regulator is one that has gained a lot of traction with the profession, especially given um, that one of the regulators seem to be more engaged and operating um, on best practice for regulators, considering the um, IAIR principles. Uh, I will not mention who that is, but there is definitely a, a notion of thinking about a, a single regulator to uh, have a more, uh, let's say, um, an approach that everybody can uh, expect to know what will happen from and not two different people, as it were, if you can call it that, going in two different directions. Um, I think it's also interesting to note uh, that, <clears throat> excuse me, I think it's interesting to note that in insolvency, we need to have as certain a position for insolvency practitioners as possible. And then that this is a call coming from the insolvency practitioners themselves to have a single regulator. Thanks, Lizelle. I might um, follow that discussion. I actually did some empirical research uh, during the time when the um, 2017 legislation rolled out through interviews with corporate insolvency practitioners in Australia. However, a lot of them had dual tickets and were also appointed as bankruptcy trustees. They had an awful lot to say about their regulators and a number of frustrations that they were feeling, not only with the rollout of the new framework at the time, where there was a lack of guidance and very, very long delays in receiving information and guidance, but they were also very frustrated with the different regulatory approaches of AFSA and ASIC. So much so that a number of them spoke of an unwillingness to engage with their corporate regulator because they were very afraid that uh, they would simply be um, accused of uh, misconduct or inappropriate action by simply asking questions. Uh, and this is their words, not mine, but they felt a great frustration at the time uh, and yet felt that AFSA had a very different regulatory approach where there was a lot of guidance and assistance available. So uh, I've written to um, quite a lot of extent about this uh, and I have another book coming out shortly which deals with it as well. Uh, but certainly there's been a lot of frustration in this area with the different regulatory approaches. And I think that this is an important issue to be considered in the root and branch review that's coming up. As I mentioned, they're, they're delving down to theoretical considerations of the objectives of insolvency law. And I think at the same time, they need to delve into the theoretical um, approaches to regulatory um, uh, regulatory. Um, frameworks, uh, regulatory models, and they really need to think through how they can have effective regulation of insolvency practitioners. There's a lot of discussion in this area dealing with the need for public confidence in uh, the insolvency practitioners, but also having involvement of insolvency practitioners themselves so that there's the expect expertise necessary to facilitate a really effective regulatory regime. And you raised a paper in your question, Eugenio, 
about some um, discussions with respect to a comparison of the UK and Australia. And I think it's very important to understand with respect to those comparisons that Australia and the UK have entirely different regulatory models. So in the UK, we have a co-regulatory approach and in Australia, it's very government focused. So when we talk about a single regulator in the UK, it's a very different discussion from a single regulator in Australia. And the recommendation has certainly been, and I think as Lizelle said, the profession is certainly supporting a single regulator in Australia, but I hope that the um, future review delves into deeper issues as to the regulatory approaches and the re regulatory models that should be um, taken up in Australia. Thank you very much. Thanks, Beth. Um, I'll speak a little about New Zealand, which has um, yet another kind of regulatory model. Uh, we have a very new regulatory regime that applies to corporate insolvency practitioners. It's set out in the Insolvency Practitioners Regulation Act of 2019, but that legislation only came fully into effect in September 2021. And prior to this, it was a real defect, in fact, quite an embarrassing defect of the New Zealand insolvency framework, that there was no system of licensing or registering insolvency practitioners. So it wasn't clear how many were acting and not only that, there were no qualification or experience requirements to be appointed to hold office as a liquidator or an administrator or a receiver. So it won't be any surprise for listeners to hear that a scheme where unqualified individuals could accept office was open to abuse. And there was abuse, but hopefully that is all now in the past. So... The Insolvency Practitioners Regulation Act creates a licensing scheme for the private insolvency practitioners who administer the formal corporate insolvency procedures, so liquidation, voluntary administration and receivership. New Zealand is different in that the um, regulation of personal insolvency isn't a matter for private practitioners. It's actually undertaken by a state employee known as the official assignee. And the official SINE can also act as a liquidator of last resort when the court is appointing a liquidator if no private liquidator is prepared to act because there's no assets in the liquidation. So overall, the, the scheme as it relates to corporate insolvency practitioners has quite a lot of similarities with Australia, but also some key differences. So as in Australia, uh, practitioners must hold a license and they can only undertake appointments within the scope of their license. But a difference is that it's not the regulator, ASIC, or the equivalent of ASIC, it's not the registrar of companies that issues insolvency practitioner licenses. What the regulator does is a credit body, so we've got these accredited bodies that can issue licenses. But at the moment, that requirement creates a doesn't really create any real differences with Australia because there is only one accredited body and that's the New Zealand Institute of Chartered Accountants. So to qualify for a license, applicants have to meet a prescribed experience requirement and a fit and proper person requirement. Currently there's no prescribed 
qualification requirement to hold um, a license in New Zealand. But again, that's a difference that's more apparent than real because applicants have to be a member of the accredited body that's issuing their license. So they have to be a chartered accountant, although there are some limited exceptions to that requirement. So having a license isn't uh, carte blanche to accept office. Uh, a practitioner also has to meet an independence requirement. And once they're in office, they have to uh, meet a whole series of, of, of duties, fiduciary duties, duties of care, skill and diligence, and various reporting requirements. They're also subject to the court's supervisory jurisdiction. But because the Ratings only been in effect for just over two years. Its impact isn't clear yet. It came into force in the midst of COVID, and as a result of COVID, the number of uh, corporate insolvency appointments dropped, and they've yet to recover to pre-COVID levels. We don't have many licensed insolvency practitioners. There's only around 138. But one issue that I'm quite interested in is whether those licensed practitioners who are likely to have higher cost overheads and um, want to earn more fees, whether they're actually going to fill the gap that's being left in the market by the exit of the individual who are not qualified, cannot get a license under the new regime. Because what empirical evidence that there is suggested that there were a small number of unqualified individuals who undertook quite a number of low-value liquidations. And so the issue is whether these, these highly qualified practitioners will actually fill that gap. Because in New Zealand, liquidators' fees and expenses are paid out of the assets in the liquidation. So if there are no assets, there's nothing to pay the insolvency practitioner. And there is no readily accessible source of public funding available for liquidators if there's no money or there's no assets in the liquidation to pay their fees. So that's me. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Lena. I would like to continue with you because I'm aware that uh, the New Zealand Supreme Court recently delivered the judgment in the case of Main Zeal. The judgment clarified the duties of directors operating financially distressed entities, as well as the standard of reasonableness that courts need to apply when assessing their actions. Lynn, could you please guide us through the significance of this decision and potentially highlight the key differences between the New Zealand approach and the case law followed in Australia or even in England based on your understanding of BTI and Sequana? I'm, I'm very pleased to be able to do that. Now, the Supreme Court's judgment in Yan and Mainzeal focused on the general duties that are imposed upon New Zealand directors that have creditor protection as their aim. So they're the equivalent of the insolvent trading rules in Australia and the wrongful trading rules under the Insolvency Act in the UK. And what I think the Supreme Court's judgment in Mainzeal does is highlight that we actually have more stringent requirements on directors in New Zealand than is the case in Australia and the UK, at least in respect of these creditor protection duties. So there are two general duties, and I'll just touch briefly on each. The first is Section 135 of the Companies Act, and it focuses on the protection of creditors as a collective group. It's a bit of a mouthful in, in the sense of its amber. It provides that a director must not cause or allow or agree the business of a company to be carried on in a manner that's likely to create a substantial risk of serious loss to creditors. Now, what the Supreme Court said is that whether or not a director is in breach of that duty is assessed on 
facts that either the director knew or should have known if they'd exercised an appropriate degree of care, skill and diligence in the management of the company's affairs. Now, the second duty is Section 136 of the Companies Act, and it's focused on the protection of individual creditors, and it provides that a director must not agree to a company incurring an obligation unless the director believes on reasonable grounds that the company will be able to meet the obligation when it's required to do so. Now, the Supreme Court confirmed that these two duties work in tandem with the duty of care, skill and diligence. Now, the duty of care, skill and diligence requires that directors continuously monitor a company's affairs. Now, if that monitoring reveals the potential for a breach of either Section 135 or 136, what directors have to do is focus on whether there's a way forward that offers a reasonable basis for concluding that the potential breach can be avoided. And directors are given a reasonable time in which to make that assessment and they're able to seek professional advice. So when you compare that with the equivalent rules in Australia and the UK, the New Zealand rules may well be triggered at an earlier time because they're not tied to cash flow insolvency as is the case in Australia or no prospect of avoiding an inevitable insolvent liquidation or administration as is the case in the UK. And in another difference, because these are general duties, there's no specific defences. So there's no equivalent of the safe harbour defence as there is in Australia or the defence of taking all steps to minimise loss to creditors as there is in the UK. So that isn't to say that New Zealand directors can't undertake a de facto liquidation or a restructuring outside of a formal insolvency procedure, but they're subject to some real limitations in their ability to do that. So what the Supreme Court has said is that directors can't engage in informal restructuring unless any agreement they strike with creditors reflects the protections that creditors have under formal insolvency procedures. So directors either have to consult with creditors or ensure that they're paid in full. Now, because these are general duties, enforcement generally takes place in a liquidation context under the general misfeasance provision. And in the past, it's been mainly liquidators who have brought enforcement action. But in a further difference, New Zealand unsecured creditors have always had an unrestricted right to commence enforcement proceedings under the general misfeasance provision. And in another new development, what the Supreme Court confirmed in Mainzeal was the court has a jurisdiction to make a compensation order in favour of an applicant creditor. So the creditor gets the benefit of the order rather than it going into the pot and being available to distribute to all creditors. So how does all that intersect with what the UK Supreme Court said in Sequana? Well, the Supreme Court in Mainzeal did touch upon that, and they said that once sections 135 and 136 are triggered, the New Zealand directors are required to have at least a substantial regard to the interests of creditors. But an even more recent decision, it's a decision of our Court of Appeal in Kumar against SmartPay, the Court of Appeal indicated that what the Supreme Court said in Mainzeal doesn't preclude the application of the finding in Sequana that once an insolvent liquidation is practically inevitable, then the interests of creditors become paramount. But of course, that may well occur sometime after the threshold for a trigger of Section 135 has passed. Thank you.
Thanks, Lina. Thanks, uh, Beth and Lizelle, for this uh, overview on both the Australian and New Zealand uh, uh, systems. And thanks for being with us today. It has been lovely having this conversation with you. Thank you. Thanks, Eugenia. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you for listening to this episode of Global Perspectives. This podcast has been brought to you by the International Insolvency Institute. Subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or Google Play.